Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it's a genuine joy to have my partner in crime and co-author of Making Channel Sales Work, David Davies, as my guest. Dave, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Thanks for having me on today. Pleasure. Could you give 90 seconds in terms of your background and why you're the guy that I picked to write the good bits in the book? Well, apart from being in the room at the same time, yeah? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Been in sales for 35 years. Glorious happy accident. I was going to become an international DJ. Had got as far as the Isle of Wight, which I think counts because you have to. Came back, two parents said, You're not sitting around waiting for the next gig, go out and get a job. And very quickly became the UK's number one fresh and frozen fish salesman. Uh, <laughs> since that time, I've spent 30 years plus building small technology companies really starting out at the cutting edge, as in putting a PC on somebody's desk and moving through every different variation of product or service you can think of in the world of technology. Now in Sandler, as you know, five years in, I continue to help small technology businesses to plan, to really get a clear strategy, um, find clarity around the kind of people that they need and want in their business and the roles they're going to play in their businesses, and then get great people, give them great process, and give them clarity around the perform metrics needed uh, in any of the different roles in sales, in client-facing roles in the business, and how to re-inspire their passion in their business. Quite often, they were experts when I um, when I first met them, uh, but not necessarily in the uh, in the world of a running a business and b going out and selling for a living. Fabulous! Thanks for that. So, tell me this: What are the four most common questions you get asked? about building a channel and if you can pepper it with a couple of real life stories uh, along the way that would be extremely helpful the most traditional approach i get is um you know one of two things all of our people are revolting or our channels revolting and so, so quite often it's it's yeah my guys don't seem to be able to find good channel partners and when they do find good channel partners those good channel partners tend to turn into bad ones quickly and so <sighs> The, the typical question is, what is it that you you do that helps a channel, you know, a channel manager take a good channel partner um, and enable them to be a really productive part of our channel, um, to play a key role in our channel, specialize in a bit of that clarity around you. If we find a partner, what should they be doing? Where should they be focused? And how do we support and help them to grow as a channel partner? And and you know, get the vicarious mutual benefit of their success becoming a part of our success. Yeah, how do we keep them focused on the other is how do I keep them focused on on what we do? Quite often a vendor will come to me and we take an example as an AI company I work for. And you know, I can't think of an organization on the planet now that hasn't put dot AI at the end of their product and gone, it's it's artificially intelligent in some way. Okay. Not even sure it's intelligent <laughs> at all, let alone artificially or otherwise. But anyway. Put that to one side. Huge amount of competition in that space. This particular AI company are battling what you would consider in the industry to be BMOS. We spent a lot of time really focusing on what differentiates us from those BMOS, what enables us as an organization, much more driven by the people in that business and our passion for outcomes than you know, hire a big company and we do some stuff. We spent a lot of time focusing on really the value proposition or um used this phrase a couple of times in the last week, and I don't think I've really used it on them, but what's our value provocation? How do we provoke prospects into wanting to engage with us? The value propositions can be a bit trite sometimes, forgive me. A provocation. What reasons do I have to give them to want to talk to us specifically and perhaps explicitly about what we do? That's a very interesting theme and one I'd like to develop because if we look at what passes for average channel marketing it's generally fucking awful and i often make the joke that it's like you know showing photos of your ugly baby to strangers and wondering why they're not as enthusiastic as you are <laughs> um, but it strikes me that an awful lot of the channel marketing the mdf frankly they would be better off buying lottery tickets than they're wasting it on what they do why is it that there's that awful technical marketing drivel that's perpetuated, which only appeals to people who can say no or maybe, 
it doesn't really provoke the business to say, you know, we need some of that. I think it starts with it's a well-worn, commonly used phrase, which is the buyer 60% of the way through his buying journey before he even finds you as an organization. And yet the only people that believe that to be true are marketeers, um, because often it's the only way they can justify their existence. Marketing, again, we sort of sound the rule that we use quite a lot, which is, you know, don't sell features and benefits. And the only people that fell in love with features and benefits again, in your marketing department. It's a really easy way of describing what your product does. It doesn't really describe what your product is. And it rarely, if ever, offers much in the way of measurement of success. And there's still this problem, and it's, it's existed for 35 years, I counter quickly, not in my businesses, but in other businesses, where sales and marketing are operating completely different commercial models and, and looking for completely different people, completely different prospects in a completely different way. And they still, even today, now have not learned how to have a mutually beneficial conversation about the same goal they should both be, be going after. This then comes to this whole question around alignment. I mean, pretty much everything is marketing. Sales, advertising, lead generation, the customer experience, unpackaging your PC, all of that is marketing. And what, what I don't, I still can't quite to get to grips with. I mean, if you follow Mark Twain's philosophy, when you realize the whole world is mad, everything makes sense. But that doesn't really provide a, a satisfactory solution to the problem which is why there isn't total alignment between sales and marketing and why you end up with silos, politics, and turf wars between sales and marketing, customer success. If you look at Salesforce, they realized that they were hemorrhaging so much business at the back end around retention that they put their customer success people in charge of sales and marketing. <laughs> and that strikes me as being a pretty forward-thinking approach. But what is it about leadership that causes them to think that you can have these stovepipes and the customer isn't going to experience that, have a negative experience along the way? It's a tough question to answer. There's so much said and spoken about leadership and effective leadership, often from people who've never led somebody, anybody, including their dog for a walk. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of confusion in that space. Quite often, I see certainly in larger organizations, I think this is probably true for technology vendors, and I apologize when I say it. Um, they're very siloed, very siloed mentality. They're very empirical. They're very much about you know, each individual trying to build their own empire with and without the organization. And that causes politics. Everybody's trying to have the biggest team and less focus on having the biggest impact, but, but having the biggest voice through the biggest team. There's a real lack of boardroom congruence. And I wonder if some of that's founded a little bit in my experience from the, from the rarity of them coming together as a group. I mean, we bring our sales team together weekly at least, if not daily in some way. Maybe even as a marketing leader, you're bringing your marketing team together maybe once or twice a day. But the board meet once a month, have a pop at each other about what it is that the other one isn't doing and walk out the room feeling at least a swage that somebody else took the blame or became the focus of that conversation. There's a real lack of cohesion and connectivity across some of the boards that, frankly, I've, I've been lucky enough not to work with. And that's a lot of the time, that's where we start. It's trying to get that group together, operating on a common, with a common vision, a vision that they could comfortably communicate, firstly, to each other. It doesn't kind of, they can't talk to each other well about a, a clear, singular vision. How well do you think it travels down through... Kids were just playing Chinese whispers in the kitchen. Organizational Chinese whispers is the biggest curse of every organization ever today, more than ever. Well, I was interviewing Pierre Van Vaperen, who is uh, the CEO of a medical marijuana business, and they're growing very fast. But he was saying that 42% of board members say the board would benefit from being aligned. Now, that's a shocking statistic. I mean, four, know, it's true. four in 10 think that their, their board is not aligned. And there is a fundamental rule that ambiguity at the top leads to politics and conflict at the bottom. And you create blame, 
you create excuses. You know, it's not our fault. It's uh, it's their fault. Lots of finger pointing, and what that then creates is a culture where your good people leave. People step it's as tricky. lead. Sorry, people, say again. People step as lead. The way uh, that the people beneath you move forward is the way that you move. They step as lead. They follow in your footsteps. There is still this 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 perception by most employees, managers. That you know, directors are a are a superpower ahead, and 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 you do what they do. <laughs> the directors are looking at VPs and beyond, and do as they do. You know, I talk to a lot of VPs who don't know why they do what they do and wish they didn't. That's often how we end up working together in the first place. <laughs> I don't I don't want to be that person anymore. Yeah, you know, that three sixty degree view of me isn't me. Right. I became corporatized and lost sight of my own personal vision. And, and then that doesn't really transpire down well into a mission that I give to my team. They got no idea who they're going to deal with at any given moment in time. I was really guilty of that through my working career. There was, yeah, the, I was the, yeah, the good, bad and ugly manager, probably sometimes all at the same time in, in the 30 minutes back. Well, that then raises yet another question because obviously we're both passionate about channel sales and the, critical role of the channel manager i'll come to that in a second though the channel seems to be the gingerhead bastard ugly stepdaughter of direct sales and in many organizations i mean you see some amazing examples dato connect wise they're thycotic these businesses and eight by eight they're growing massively through the channel and you know if you look at dato and connect wise they, they ipo for 1.5 billion and they have great channel chief, great channel programs. Their next nearest rival IPO'd 100 million. A ratchet of 15 times says quite a lot there. So why is it that still uh, the channel is seen as the poor relation of direct sales? Sort of goes back. I, I'd love the fact yeah, we're telling stories now of organizations that are demonstrating a changing view of the channel will change the, the long-term view of the channel. But we're talking uh, you know, a decade before people change that view. I mean, you know, I cut my hair off so that people didn't see me as ginger. The ugly bit I can't do a lot about. Um, <laughs> but it's always seemed to be, you know, I've been very lucky. I've worked with some amazing channel managers and a lot of that's poured into the book. But, um, but I've worked with some pretty dismal ones. And quite often because, you know, in vendors especially, yeah, they've got the direct sales force, the snipers out there in the field doing the best possible work, you know, the direct, direct sales team. Anybody that comes into that team that's well-liked but failing miserably in front of the prospect is given to the channel to try and develop it. Sorry, develop it. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Manage it. And so you've got somebody who cannot sell, little or no management experience, who's going out to what can be at times well-run commercial organizations telling them what to do with all the credibility of a bent spoon just doesn't work. It's, uh, you used it before, it kind of ages a little bit, this, this Tim Nice but Dim approach of what I call, yeah, kind of shaky hand man. Fantastic. You'll have a coffee with them for 15 minutes, but you wouldn't let them loose anywhere near the business beyond a well-drilled technical presentation of the product because you wouldn't trust them in front of um, selling to their own parents, let alone your prospects. And so salespeople in the channel spend a lot of time trying to avoid these channel managers because they don't trust them, they don't believe in them, uh, and they don't believe that they're bringing any personal value to their process. And it makes total sense. What makes a great channel manager great? I think they spend real time getting to know the business. Seems yeah, like a really simple thing, but they you know, kind of do their research beforehand and they carefully select partners that have a good, you know, a good match with your own organizational culture. Um, they choose partners that I think are more experts, more specialists in a particular industry. And so they're careful to select partners that perhaps don't spend more time running over each other's foot and, and you know, driving, driving their business you know, collectively together forward. 
they know that the relationships they need to establish are at executive level, that they are seen as strategic partners able to come in at board level and help that partner organization to grow with you, with them. So they're trusted at that grade. Um, They're really good trainers. And I don't mean technical. It's a place for that stuff. But they know what it takes to sell direct and they're able to train a partner's people to follow suit and do that smoothly, frictionlessly, effortlessly. They build a series of confident performetrics that they, that they develop with the partner that both parties hold themselves accountable to. And so they're able to, again, measure the success of that partnership you know, from day one and through that original, you know, those first 90 days together, getting them to that first you know, um, noticeable invoice and beyond into developing more and more clients like that. Um, so they're really a strategic partners. They're not, they're, their mode and mindset is developing and growing others' businesses, you know, augmented by the products or services that they sell in partnership. One of the things that's very clear in my experience is that they also have fabulous business acumen. They're not fixated on talking about the product they recognize the ability to translate whatever their products are in the context of the end user's business. And they aren't afraid of working with other vendors who offer complementary products and services so that they can help the partner win the deal and deliver a really good solution for the customer. And you know, as I look at the, the, the competencies of channel managers and channel chiefs, they are so of really good ones. A channel manager is closer to a general manager in profile than they are to a sales manager. And a channel chief is closer to a chief executive than they are to a VP of sales. So that then speaks to the fact that you really do need to be very selective in your recruitment, but also in terms of creating a runway for someone to transition out of direct sales and direct sales management into channel management, and they need a bucket load of scar tissue. So again, why is it that still today there doesn't seem to be a really effective training program to start fostering and developing channel management talent? It's hard. You and I both know this. We, we spent a lot of time working, reworking, revising, and revisiting and I found it the other day in my folder with you know some of our original kind of mad etchings on the wall. It changed so much as we went through the journey because we found different variants of channel and that augmented what we were thinking. Probably built something in the more classic view that was yeah, maybe not as modern as it needed to be. This see, you know, this this change of role that we saw as we developed the book was was super important. It was beyond just being good at sales and able to talk to other people. It's incredibly easy to make, borrow, steal, augment somebody else's selling system. I mean, there are plenty of organizations globally that have taken Sander's original content and made it their own. That sales stuff's easy. It's too easy to teach. There's no level of complexity it's a, it, it's hand to hand combat you know man to man the channel most people most sales trainers especially will run a mile when they suddenly realize that the person they're trying to teach isn't even talking to the to the end user they're talking to somebody else who's talking to the end user who doesn't want to talk to them about the conversations they're having with the end user <laughs> it's a totally different sport and i think again most of them want to teach selling skills they don't really teach much in the way of management and leadership skills. And perhaps therein lies the challenge of the channel when they're investing in training either internally or externally is a real true understanding of the role and the function of channel development, partner development. I get really hung up on that. It's a tiny semantic changing the word from account to development, partner development manager. I mean, you do it with clients too, changing account management to client development. A tiny change of word changes how people look and perceive their role. It tells them, instructs them from that title alone exactly what their role is, is to develop others. 
not to account manage them. And again, this then comes back to some really important fundamental misunderstandings. If you're developing them, you have to understand their motivation. Good managers start understanding an indiv- uh, a salesperson's motivation in the recruitment process. And if they've inherited them, the first thing they do is they understand why they come to work, why they're in sales, why they're in this job, who they're doing it for. And in 35 years, I've got more fingers uh, on one hand than have actually, you know, people who've actually started those conversations with their salespeople. And what, what I've noticed is the best of the best are spending a minimum of 50, but upwards of 70% of their time on site with their partners, coaching, training, developing, holding them to account, planning, strategizing. And when you look at the complexity of the role, you know, they've got 90 to 112, 115 different functions. You know, Forrester did a wonderful infographic with the 90 functions. I think we've uncovered a few more since. Mm-hmm. And it must be a terrifying prospect for people when they realize just how complex the role has become. And they're probably thinking, you know, maybe I'll just go for an easy life. Just stick with direct sales. Yeah, do a few enterprise deals. Maybe do five or six a year, do my quota, don't have to herd cats and not worry about selling where I have no power and all I have are influence and trust. I don't think there's, you know, I do a lot of interviewing for my clients. There's typically when we get together, first thing we're doing is building the team that we're going to work with over the years that we work together. And that's one of the two things, don't have one. And they're the number one salesman, breadwinner, you know, chief cook, bottle washer. Um, so need to develop a team and devolve responsibility for sales down the line into them and the, the, the people they're going to put together. But yeah, it is a frightening prospect. I mean, but I mean, so many people who I've done my two years in new business and uh, I'm looking for the next step in my career and the next step in my career to sit on my fat ass ringing people and saying, I don't suppose you've got anything for me this month. Not all that investment in getting good at sales, all that investment in training, you know, the blood, sweat, tears, emotional, ego, anguish that you go through learning how to sell properly. And your single ambition in life is to sit around going, I don't suppose you've got anything for me this month. No ambition at all, right? And your people come into channels because they think it's great. You know, everybody else is doing the hard work. I just have to pop in and collect the orders. We, we know this. Behind you, you've got that lovely chancer card. Do you mind <laughs> uh, moving? Yeah, so it says... I'm never it, sure which way my head's supposed to go. Get out a sales free card. It's um, not. And it's not. And the problem is that so many salespeople who move into channel and so many sales leaders think that somehow these are cheap and free salespeople, that they're not. Some of them are among the best in the world. If they, you're trusted they, to get anywhere near the best in the world. Yeah. yeah. So big question then. In terms of how you see the future panning out, off the back of the COVID lockdown and no real opportunity for business travel because, I mean, the coronavirus furlough scheme in the UK has just been extended. They've got a two-week quarantine on anyone stepping off a plane and chances are that'll be on both ends. How do you see that playing out? And we knew this when we started writing the book. It's the reason we chose this as a subject is channel is, should be, certainly in the the world that we spend most of our time, you know, technology businesses, large manufacturing business, pharmaceutical, those sales-driven organizations. You know, I spent my entire career as an international man of mystery or misery. I'm not sure which one. You know, jumping on the plane at the merest opportunity to do so because it was, you know, Exciting, interesting. I've been to every single continent on the planet, meeting partners. Antarctica? No. See, not Antarctica. And still weirdly, obsessed with Japan. I've never been there. That's the only place on the planet. And uh, still can't work out why. Man of mystery. Sorry. Yeah, international man of misery sat in airport lounges. It's not as glamorous as people think. But yeah, lockdown's going to continue. And I actually think in this business unusual time, as we business as usual, we're going to become much more landlocked by borders and by travelability. 
now's the time for organizations with international ability, ability. Oh, I don't know where I was going with that, get proper word out. International ambitions are going to need to build a channel. And it was the right thing to do in the first place anyway. Find cultural experts on the ground, passionate about who you are and what you do, to do the job they're better at than you ever could be. There's nothing I, worse than flying into, I don't know, South Korea as a you know, proper Englishman with little or no you know, understanding of the culture, making you know, direct eye contact with people at VP level and you know, shaking people's hands randomly, which is completely two of the wrongest things you could possibly do <laughs> from day one. I was interviewing Zach Selt for the uh, <laughs> podcast a couple of weeks back, and he said that he was speaking to one company that have decided to employ the uh, the wife of one of the directors because her family is Asian and she came to America when she was a kid, but she understands Asian culture. This was how they, they were planning to expand into Southeast Asia. I mean, what on earth? Anyway, yep. The piece around cultural awareness is really key. And understanding that the way that different people approach negotiation, how they treat money, the etiquette, all of that stuff, you're not going to get that from a direct sales force by hoofing over the Atlantic. And even Americans coming into Europe, the cultural subtleties that you need to understand if you're going to succeed in a local market. Well, they're and, not blessed like you and I are with an, you know, an accent that's really attractive in their country. I just upset the entire Americas. And this then brings to mind the, the key question, which is, given that we've got the lockdown likely to continue for the foreseeable future, and we'd, we're going to have to go towards the channel, there's an awful lot of crap out there, let's be honest. And I keep using this because it is we've observed it, that 2 to 4% of the channel produce 50, 40 to 60% of the revenue. Yep. And actually, this is something called Price's Law. Price's Law states that 50% of your production will come from the square root of the number of people in your organization. So if you have 10 direct salespeople, three will produce 50%. If you have 100 distributors, 10 will produce 50%. If you have 10,000 channel partners, then 100 will produce 50%. Now, what that tells us is that talent grows in a linear fashion and a whining, moaning, bitching, excuse-making and being crap uh, grows exponentially. Now, in my mind, and again, I'd be curious to debate this with you, represents a fantastic opportunity for vendors to sit down and look at their channel uh, with a blank sheet of paper and work out where that 50% production comes from. And then to can the bottom 50%. So if you've got 50, that's, you keep seven and you get rid of 43. You put all of that pipeline into the top seven. You put some really good SDRs behind them and some marketing, really good marketing that actually works instead of the usual data sheets and uh, tedious white papers that no one reads. And then you spend the rest of that budget on training, coaching, and recruiting people like that top 50%. And if you do that, within a year, you'll be at the same revenue level or higher, but you will get to keep two to three times the profit. And your partners will be growing at 300, 500, 800, 1,200, 3,000 percent. Now, I think that's going to take someone with a bit of courage. But what are your thoughts? I think it does take a lot of courage because it's a very non-traditional view, isn't it? And um, it's a horrible part of my early conversations with prospects is, you know, as we look across your team, we'll start working together. And it won't be an outcome of things I tell you to do. It will just be natural attrition. Half of these people will leave because they won't want to do what I'm asking you to do. My question is, if half of your people are going to leave, what's going to happen to you and I, our relationship? I mean, these are family members, right? I mean, you, you told me you built this organization as a family. If I was coming in and telling you I was going to cull half your family, yeah, I wouldn't be invited in. Yeah, it's not Friday the 13th, is it? <laughs> well, it does, it does depend on your family, I agree. I know where your head's going with that one. Um, and the brave ones do it. And the brave ones bring me in. And the brave ones find exactly what I tell them, that once we walk through the door, half of the people there don't want to be there. They don't want to do what it takes to be successful at sales. They thought it was okay to just turn up. 
they work on the premise that in sales, the only thing you need for success is two ears and a mouth and, um, and you know, try and work out which one of those works in, in more in order. So, yeah, you're, look, you're right. Most sales leaders know it, that the significant proportion of their workforce is not productive. Some of that's their fault, right? It's, it's got to be, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Like you said, if you sit down, you really work out what onboarding and continual development looks like in your organization, you can half it overnight. Significantly more profitable, distinctly more successful because of it. So this then points to a requirement that senior executives in the C-suite need to better understand the real value that good channel can bring. Because historically, the CFOs played loose, fast and loose with commissions. They are afraid of spending money on training the partners to sell because they're afraid that they'll sell competitors' products. So what advice would you give to a CEO with a vision who wants to go down the channel route, but they've got resistance or a hostile board who's thinking, well, that's very non-traditional. You know, that, that's not what we've always done. And that's not what made us successful in the past. I think part of it is, is you get hard resistance quite often when you're, when you're hard pitching ideas that you haven't really thought through as clearly as you could do. It takes a, a little bit of thought and a lot more planning. If you're in the middle of a dysfunctional channel, then stop and really spend some time working out what you've done to create it because it's your fault. That's my best piece of advice to most leaders is if, you, you know, if you've got any kind of troubles in your business, you know, it's the cheapest piece of advice I give anybody is buy a mirror. You know, and take a look at yourself because most of the problems start with you. Um, so really need to take some time to plan it and work through and spend a lot less time. You know, this was crippling in my career as a sales leader. I spent a huge amount of time staring at dashboards I didn't understand, trying to work out what they were telling me. There's not a lot of, there's so much information available to leaders these days that I think, you know, some of the decision-making perplexity comes from all of the different data points that are thrown at them. And it really is, I think, a desert island exercise sometimes is stepping away from all the other advice and input, really just finding a clear space of time to sit down, have a look at how you got to where you got to, um, spend some real time working out what you want it to look like. So not forget, find out what you've got work out what you want, understand and establish what the gaps between those two things are, really start to document that plan in a style that you could hand to your, to your wife, your partner, your best mate, your neighbor, and they would understand it. Really spend some time working out what does good look like in the people within your business and then really take a one-by-one, person-by-person view and stick that template over the top of the people you've got and work out if they are the right people or not. It's interesting. I, I think listening to you talk, I think I've come to a little epiphany, which is that because the results are so unpredictable and the partners are collectively unreliable, the emphasis on building the land army is there in order to try and spread your risk and reduce the odds of missing quota. But actually, that's a false economy. You're asking the wrong question. and the emphasis there on trying to hit the number any way you possibly can, uh, because you're under pressure, your VC or your private equity is kicking your ass, and you're looking for that, you know, that magic dust. The reality is, if you recruited the right people, you onboarded them well, and you gave them a system that was reliable, whether it's Sandler, whether it's Medic, whether it's Cheddar, yeah. whoever, and you systematically worked with them to plan their market, plan their territory, uh, plan their accounts, plan their pursuit. Um, That requires a monumental investment. And that requires a general. It doesn't require an infantry private who's just going over the top. Uh, It requires strategic thinking. It requires the ability to see beyond your own nose and see the big picture. It requires patience and compassion and that spine of steel because you're going to have to have a lot of tough conversations along the way. So coming back to that recruitment question, does it make sense to take people from your industry or 
is it better to work with people who have a broad range of experience in different sectors, different segments, different markets, and then bring them in, take them through an 18-month, two-year process where they're learning how to be a channel manager, but drawing on that breadth of experience. I mean, if you think about it, right, so let's say, for example, you're, you're selling technology through MSPs. Most MSPs rarely, if ever, grow above 10 employees. Right. So you really want to hire people that have got experience in working in MSPs, am I right? So you may be a massive pan-global vendor at you know, billions, trillions of revenue. People in your channel should look like and should understand the nuances of working in that type of business. So they should come from that space. Because in those smaller businesses, you are developing that natural breadth of experience. I spent 30 years avoiding working with, I worked in partnership, I never worked for an organization when we started that had more than three employees. Mm. And yeah, we left many of those organizations with hundreds behind us, but we learned. You know, I learned my skills in finance, in marketing, in sales. I was the IT director for most of those organizations because mostly sales businesses, if the IT goes down, who was getting hit? Me. So who was the person that rang the alarm and re reacted quickest? Me. If I fix my own problems, I'm only my, I've only got myself to blame. So I learned you know, the broader aspects of running a business, broader aspects of planning the breadth of a business rather than simply just being in my singular discipline of sales and turning up to my call presenting my slide and knew what it took to run those types of businesses. And that's what I loved. I mean, I started off learning about channel management under the um, guise of some guys from companies like Tektronix and Mitsubishi selling their printers. And I was selling a lot of them. Um, back in the day when you could put cash on the end of my desk, it was nothing more motivating <laughs> than a thick pile of dollars for a campaign they were running or a mountain bike that I chose that was wheeled into the office. A lot of that stuff's dead. It used to work so well. But they got my business. They really came in and took time to understand my audience, my clients, my prospects, my business, my people, and what it was they could do to help us grow. And they played a significant role in growing our businesses. And the more they grew my business, the more money I made, and the more money I made for them, and the more prospects I won, the more clients I had. So I made more money, and they made more money, and my clients grew too. So there was that, we talk about it a lot, that win-win-win up and down the line. It was totally symbiotic. Well, I interviewed John Delosio from 8x8. And what uh, JV said was that he would only recruit people who came from an MSP or partner background. Right. And none of them had less than 15 years. So they get it. You yeah. hire people the people you want to do business with. It makes total sense. There's no point in a small business hiring you know, the enterprise big swinger from you know, a large technology vendor. They won't fit. They won't enjoy the culture. They won't understand your audience because their version of small business is anybody with 10,000 employees plus. Your version is anybody with an employee. <laughs> they've got to look like, they've got to smell like, they've got to have worked in those environments and understand the broader commercial feel of a business of that time. Very interesting. Okay, what are the questions that people don't ask but should around the channel? They really quite often, I think, you know, when I first start out, they don't ask me enough about what a good partner for us looks like. They go around chasing after their, their, their competitors' channel partners, trying to dispossess or dislocate much bigger, much richer vendors. And I wish they'd spend more time talking to me about you know, what does a good partner like for, for us look like? And quite often the problem is, of course, they haven't given any bloody thought yet to what a good client looks like for them. Yeah. They spend so much time in the science lab with their expertise inventing brilliant ideas that nobody asked them for. And there's no real clarity, actually, when we first get together whether anybody wants it. It wasn't designed with client in mind. And if you're not client in mind, you're very, you're really going to struggle to build a channel because you want to be working with people that are working with the people you want to work with. That's what a good channel looks like. They're already there. They're already in the room. They're already trusted advisors to those clients. They already know that when you turn up, that client's working with your competitive vendor and they're 
pissed off, irritated, frustrated, disappointed, been let down in some way, and they're waiting for you to turn up as some form of missionary to save their clients from the pain of working with you know, the big vendor that's grown to the point where they believe they own the universe. But they understand the chinks already in their clients' armor, as it were, and are able to, to frictionlessly, frictionlessly, quickly put you out in front of their clients and say, we've only just met these guys. We think they've got something. We want you to talk to them. Your channel should be an introduction service. And I don't mean it as crass as that sounds, but the channel partners that you work with should want to be desperate, ready to introduce you to their clients. Okay, one final question on this then. So have you ever been blindsided because something that, you know, there was a change in the marketplace or you hadn't been paying attention? And then that either positively or negatively affected your channel sales. I invented the phrase that, yeah, my truck flipped out for a second. It was um, from a Coca-Cola advert where the, the, the truck goes over the edge. So, yeah, I mean, I think I spend most days with my truck flipping out. <laughs> I've been blindsided all the time, you know, kind of walking into your know, marketplaces feeling like we knew exactly what the market wanted and the market direction and full of um, vim and vigor, um, ready to go and attack markets, only to find out that learning from the best sales trainers on the planet, prospects that our proposition was so far off it was unfeasible. Just no, no, no palette for anything that we do. You know, I was a technologist, and so I was the easiest person in, in the world to sell on a technology and get all excited about coming and working for a company. I quite often describe to people in 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 35 year career, I've built three very successful multi million pound multi departmental, multi divisional, or multinational companies. I've also shut shut quite a few because there was just no market for what we did. And quite often in those organisations, we gave up trying to do it direct and find channel partners that would get us out of sales free, and that didn't work. So quite often, yeah, the blind sides, and it still happens to me now sometimes, is client centricity having that focus that you know i've lacked sometimes in my career on who's gonna bloody buy this what is it how do i provoke them into having an emotional reaction about what i do to the point where they've agreed to give me you know a couple of hours in their diary because they they, they want to learn more okay so this has been really fascinating i think we should definitely do this again i do Normally, it's when you and I get together. Mutual <laughs> <laughs> um, Appreciation Society. Mm-hmm. So tell me this. What, what are you being influenced by? What are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment that you think, yeah, this is really class? What I'm watching is Tales from the Loop on Amazon Prime, right. which is fantastically beautiful to look at. Um, and the stories are incredible. Massive sci-fi fan. Put my hands up. What I'm reading... I haven't read for a while, but it was a gift and I'm reading, you can't see it because of the way that Zoom blanks out my screen. I'm reading a very beautiful copy of The Art of War by Sun Tzu and loosely translating the military strategies as I read through them into an application into the world of channel because it's been such a long time since I've read and translated it and I'm about halfway through. It was a gift for my birthday. Excellent. Good stuff. So. You've got a golden ticket, mm-hmm. and you can go back and advise the idiot Dave, age 23, who was immortal, invincible, and knew everything. <laughs> what would you whisper in his ear? Two things. One of which, that bloody nameplate that says David William Davies Jr., the 11th, should be taken off your desk, you twat, and get it off your business cards. But anyway, I thought that was important back then. But the single biggest advice I'd give him as he was starting out into his career of raising other people's children for a living is get some bloody management training, good management training, professional management training, and from people that had actually managed people. Um, so not theorists. Learn to be a better manager and very quickly learn to be a better leader of people. I was um, at times, despite my fan club's protestations, I was a crappy manager because I spent more time worrying about how good I looked as a salesman and rescuing my team you know, so that I could you know, surreptitiously look like the big dog 
and should have spent a lot more time understanding people, understanding my people and understanding the reasons that I go to work. Biggest mistake I made in my career. And honestly, we've been both been there. Thank you for that. Well, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I'm in recruitment mode for two organizations. And here's my struggle. I'm still to this day thoroughly disappointed with the quality of salespeople in this country or beyond. I'm only yeah, really focused here right now. The sheer inability for people who would perceive themselves to be professional salespeople to demonstrate any form of sales process, any form of tangible way of taking somebody from, I might be interested in what you do, to I'm kind of interested in what you do, to oh, I bought what you do. And that's still my struggle today. And I can find some people, again, who are you know, just brilliant in telephone interview, and you stick them in a face-to-face interview or you know, slight challenge at the moment with it being more video-based, and watching their skills crumble. And it get too emotional about it, but it breaks my heart to watch so many people in our industry continue to give the term sales such a bad name in their style, in their behaviors, in their seeming disinterest in interview is the best way to demonstrate to anybody how you sell. And the sheer level of disinterest some of them show in being and demonstrating professional standards is disappointing. Counter that when I have been lucky enough to meet a few very, very good ones. And some of them have very little training but are able to demonstrate their natural development attributes and, and, and your know, willing ability to be coached by others, even in an interview process, even if they know they're not getting a job. But 90% of them really don't own or have earned the right to call themselves professional salespeople. And that will continue to disappoint me, I'm sure. It will, definitely. And uh, again, this is a perennial problem. But what I've realized over the years, and I know you and I have discussed this many times, is the critical importance of managers constantly be recruiting. Given that you are likely to find an A player, maybe one in 200, that's pretty much what your findings are as well? Pretty much, yeah. And sadly, those numbers haven't changed. 200 CVs will get me to one higher. You'll get B players somewhere between 6 and 12%, depending on the industry. And you know you need to keep filling that funnel. Prospecting for candidates is the manager's equivalent of prospecting for new business for hundred percent. And it's a daily activity. Every one of the scale ups that I'm interviewing the sales leaders for, their managers are interviewing pretty much every day without fail. Sometimes two, three interviews a day. And so you you can't get good at. You can't get good at prospecting unless you prospect, and you can't get good at hiring unless you recruit. Got to be in that process to learn and improve your understanding of people, your understanding of the role. It's essential. Always be hiring. And the the other side of that is you need the practice. You've got to get out there and interview so that you can start sniffing out the bullshit. Because let's face it, the one thing salespeople might be able to sell is themselves because it's the one thing they're more intimately aware of. And if they want the job, you've got to be able to filter out the Mr. Beans dressed in a tuxedo, because <laughs> um, you ain't getting Mr. James Bond. And I think this then points to another area that is certainly, I know, a passion of yours as well, is management development and management enablement. I've never heard the term management enablement until I started coining it. and why is it that managers are basically tapped on the shoulder and left to flounder and somehow completely different skill set is miraculously meant to you know just puff out a thin air yep yeah this isn't quantum physics when it comes to management you know something doesn't come from nothing you've got to learn how to manage and managing the supervisory part of management is dramatically reduced if you hire well you onboard well, you train well, you coach well, and you hold people to account. So in finishing this then, what advice would you give to CROs who are looking at building their channel for the first time? And what do they want in a channel chief? All the things you've just said. It's somebody who looks like and smells like the channel you're building. 
for a start. So they'll understand those businesses well. They are able to demonstrate competence across the sales and management skill base so that they're trusted to train, invited to coach, asked to mentor the people that they work with and have the supervisory skills to be able to hold their channel partners and themselves to account. And for the things that they both promised each other they were going to do together. And it's a really broad skill base. And it's somebody that probably isn't always necessarily, there's no reason for great direct salespeople to go into the channel. And there's no reason for great direct salespeople to go into management. Frankly, they'll make less money. So what's the point? Find people that have got that good, broad business acumen and are able and trusted to train, coach, mentor, um, skill up and grow. They're more akin to business coaches than they are. Yeah, it's a, it, is a, it is a complexly broad skill base that you need to have. And frankly, most don't. If anyone is looking at recruiting into their channel, Dave and I worked with one of our partners to develop a couple of profiles to predict whether or not someone is likely to work out in role. And they're they're working very well in the real world. So if you are considering building your channel or rekindling your channel, then please get in touch. Dave, thank you so much. This has been inspiring, informative, and as usual, engaging. So we'll have you back fairly shortly. Dave and I have written Making Channel Sales Work which is essentially a blueprint on how not to screw up your channel. And we've, we're just on the cusp of releasing a program by the same name, Making Channel Sales Work, yeah. which is intended to help you build an effective channel by recruiting, onboarding, developing, training, and equipping with the tools and resources they need really good channel managers. And uh, he and I are working collaboratively to then take that program into your broader channel base so that we work with your channel managers and your best, your special forces partners. So if any of you have an interest in engaging with us, either get in touch with me at mcauchi at sandler.com. Dave, your email address? I'm david.davies at sandler.com. And we are launching this in June. I'm running some clinics around hypergrowth, and I'm going to be having Dave on as a guest presenter for that as well. So if there's anything that you want to talk about to the channel, we have the Making Channel Sales Work LinkedIn group. Please subscribe to them, join there. I've got a video channel on YouTube, and Dave produces some fabulous tools in terms of helping people to manage and develop their pipeline look at what's real, what's not. And together, we are, uh, what's it, uh, thing one and thing two. Uh, (laughs) It's it's like a a bald alliance. So, Dave, how else can people get hold of you? Best place in the world to find me, if if you can't find me in person, is on LinkedIn. It has all the tools you need to find me in person. So, yeah, I'm David W. Davies on LinkedIn. But if you pipe David Davies making channel sales work, you'll find me. Make a connection. I'll always send a thank you. And if you want to talk, don't be afraid to come back and say, can we talk? Fabulous. Thanks, Dave. Well, good. Thank you, Marcus. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. If you think that you would be a great guest or you know someone who would be a great guest, and I'm particularly interested in two types of guests, those with scar tissue in the channel, and have been able to scale and grow their business rapidly through the channel without the wheels coming off. And also CROs and sales leaders, founders and owners of super fast growing uh, tech companies, ideally in the 10 to 50 million pound mark. Uh, And they want to grow by 200% compound year on year and get to a billion in five to eight years. So that's Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.